Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. A lot of Christians are more than happy to say, and quite frankly, not just Christians, but just pick a religion and pick a spiritual belief. And if it, if it involves a textbook, some scripture of some sort, like the Scientology, uh, whatever book they use, of, of Hubble, bunch of kids. The devotees of these religions, for some reason, just assume that you don't have to justify the text. And uh, that would be a serious violation of, um, of, of logic. Uh, it's called the uh, uh, circular argument, or it's called begging the question, which is the same thing. See, the question is, is this text that you don't think has to be justified? It, I mean, is it, is it self-justifying? Is anything self-justifying? Of course you have to justify the text. You have to give evidence and reasons why you think this text is trustworthy. Christians, the very first thing Geisler says is that far too many Christians say, I don't have to defend my beliefs. Um, and, and the first example is the scripture, for instance, the Bible. It doesn't have to be defended. It says it's the word of God. I believe it's the word of God. End of story. That's one excuse that we're going to add to the list we saw in we're a culture of irrationalism. A lot of us are afraid to be intolerant by defending our beliefs, whatever the reason. Gruthuus will give you some insight about the psyche of this modern world where we seem to be just out of whack with thinking that we have to defend ourselves in what we believe. And what we have to do is not just focus on those reasons, but to answer them. Like, are these legitimate reasons? We're psycho, uh, like, I believe they're psychological um, necessities. So how can, why do we have to justify them? I hope you see that, that despite the fact we've been caused by psychology and sociology and even religion to believe what we believe, that's no excuse to go on without examining those beliefs when we come of age and when we have the opportunity to look and see what we believe. So, there's a lot of literature, and we need all of these reasons. We need to study all of these reasons why people resist justifying what they believe, because this culture, in general, is telling us that we don't have to justify anything. Just believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, within limits, and because no one really has the truth anyway, and all religions are the same, and all these logical fallacies, I've just, I've just about three of them in that one sentence, like it, it, our culture is anti-rational. It's almost an irrational culture. When truth dies, when a claim to truth dies, then um, there's just no incentive anymore in this culture to take the trouble to justify what we believe. So that's why I'm overdoing this one. Like really, really. I mean, many times with this class, I've ignored Geisler, but. But frankly, I want you to see, I just want you to feel the, the weight of evidence that there is 
for there being no excuse for, for not looking at what we believe in a critical way. It's so easy to just believe what you believe and leave it there and live life on the shallow end. You could be wrong, says Sire, and he's right. Your beliefs could be wrong. You could be wasting your life on trivialities like Scientology and things like that. I mean, I don't want to pick on them, but it's the obvious one. Because that's the one that everybody seems to be. There's 1,500 of them in, in Canada. It's not like we're being overwhelmed by them. It's just they're there, and it's attractive because all the stars you know, are involved in that, that silliness. But if they took the trouble to do what we're doing, you know, like analyze these things, how credible is the text they use? How credible is the person who wrote the text? What historical evidence is there that we were sevens on some other universe and this is all just in our mind? Like we have to analyze these things or else you can end up believing the most ridiculous things and the one life you have is down the tube. Um, it's, it's serious stuff. One time. Unless, unless the Sebrans are right, you know, the Scientologists are right and you just pass over to the other side and come back a billion, trillion more times really just depreciating the value of this life as if this one's meaningless. It's just one in trillion, trillions of lifetimes. Now, if the Hindus are right who believe in reincarnation, if you mess this one up, you're going to come back in the next lifetime as some kind of snake or bug or worse. Um, it, it, like it, it, The American version of reincarnation is that, of course, we're always going to come back as ourselves, and we're going to come back as a human being, probably a princess or a king or something. But it, it, the, the real incarnation from Buddhism and Hinduism is that it, it's almost impossible in a trillion lifetimes to come back as a human being. The Hindus actually say it's like we're swimming in the ocean and the odds of coming back a human being is like a turtle that's in the ocean coming up for air in this huge ocean and just happening to uh, put its head through the, uh, a little hole in a log that, that, that's floating on the ocean. In other words, it's almost the odds against coming back a human are almost nil. It's going to take billions and trillions of lifetimes and horrible hells and these horrible people like, what I'm saying is, let's take this life seriously. And, and some of these so-called spiritualities and religions don't do that. And I think that, that's a dangerous game. If, if one of these or some of these religions are true, if one of them is true, uh, and, and we're messing up big time by following trivial beliefs, justifying beliefs. That's what you want to think about. Keep asking yourself, why, 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 why do we have to justify them? Well, here are 20 arguments all together for people saying, I don't have to justify them, and the answers, the refutation, the, 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 the objection to those excuses for not doing this. It goes against the whole culture. We're all happy to just sit there and do nothing, including Christians. That's, that's the big sin here. Faithists, experientialists. It feels right. That's why I believe this. Uh, I've experienced something. That's why I believe it. We have all the excuses. I don't have time. There isn't enough evidence. It's, there's too many options. We have all, all of the excuses. And now here are some more. Number one excuse is supposedly, like I say, number one is that the Bible doesn't need to be defended. So don't, don't, don't give me that burden. That begs the question. It's a logical fallacy to believe that, that the Bible doesn't need to be defended. Of course it needs to be defended. You can't just assume it's valid without evidence, without proof. Now, we're not talking about conclusive, rational proof beyond a shadow of a doubt, but we're talking about, give me some evidence that it's trustworthy. 
Why can't that? See, if I walk in here and say, I'm a Christian, and I, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and I don't have to prove that because I just believe it, then why can't you say, well, I'm a Scientologist, and I believe that Hubbard's uh, you know, fantasy novels about UFOs and, and, and strange worlds is true? We could all say the most bizarre things if we agreed that no one has to defend what they believe. But if we say, like, we do need to do more than just believe in some book, including the Bible and including the, 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 the Quran and including the Bhagavad Gita and Hinduism and including the scriptures of all religions and the new scriptures of Shirley MacLaine and Deepak Chopra and all of these things that people base their lives on, we have to justify these things. We have to do that or else we could end up believing the most outrageous nonsense and just put it all down the tubes and, and, and it's, there's no excuse to do that. It is complicated. It is confusing. There are a lot of beliefs and yet some of them, I think, with a little bit of thought, you can see that you can eliminate some. And you know, the reason I gave you that stat on world religions is to try to show you that it's not like there are 8,000 religions out there. There's, there may be nine big ones, and quite frankly, the top four on the chart, Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, that, that's, that's like two-thirds of the world. Those three religions alone, Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, are like two-thirds, 67% of, of all there is. All the other religions are small compared to those three. Hinduism's almost a billion. Muslims are over a billion. Christians are over two billion. The world's 6.4 billion. We've got two-thirds of the world now with just three religions. And if we add in atheists, we're up to like in, in the 70% range now. With four groups, we can account for more than 70%. There's a billion atheists, there's a billion Hindus, there's a billion plus Muslims, and there's two billion Christians. Two, four, six, eight, two, three, four, five. Five out of 6.4 billion. So it's not that complicated. There aren't that many options. Sometimes it sounds like there's just so many options that no one could possibly analyze and study. There's either theism, there's, there's either monism, which is belief that we're all gods, fallen gods, and we're going, to, we're going to waken up to our spiritual reality if we can free the soul from the body, or there's atheism. The rest, which is less, like a hundred, maybe five, four or five hundred thousand, all the other religions, Make up only four or five hundred thousand, and and people, which is nothing in in, in, in world terms, like seven percent or something like that. It isn't as complicated as it looks. There really is no excuse to uh, not understand theism. And then if you if you find that theism makes sense, then you start worrying about the two or three different kinds of theism, or monism, or atheism. Let's just see. Atheism we can call a religion, quite frankly, the way I define it. Anything that claims to be a worldview that answers ultimate questions in its own way is a, is a religion. So it's not that complicated. There's four big ones and then a whole bunch of little ones, and even the whole bunch of little ones aren't. It isn't that big a group. So the Bible doesn't need defense. The answer is, so we don't have to do apologetics, and the answer is, yes, it does. You're question begging. And remember that for your favorite text. Deepak Chopra needs to be justified. Um, how to know God one of the scriptures from Deepak, we still have to justify that. We have to find out whether there's evidence for what he says. 
The second one you should be aware of too, although this one's, I think the first one is a, is a gem. That's the, that's the biggest fault of most, most uh, people in any religion, um, taking that, their authority, their, their, their sacred scripture as if it's self-authenticating. And, uh, there's not very much in life that's self-authenticating. Um, I think there are a few things that may be self-authenticating, like, I believe I'm a person with an individual identity. I believe I'm free. I believe in the law of cause and effect, that for everything that happens, there's a reason that's caused it. But other than that, other than a very few few things, I, I, I don't think there's any scripture that's self-authenticating, even if it says it's the word of God. It still has to be verified and justified and analyzed and studied to see if, it's, if, it, if there's contradictions in all kinds of things and evidence and about the writers and their character and, and, and their testimony. So be careful with what, with what you take as your, um, your holy book, your, your scripture, your guide to life. We're in a culture where there's so many, I mean, th- th- there are not that many religions, but when you get into the New Age spirituality stuff, there's an awful lot of um, options about people telling you that we all have angel guides and, you know, we're fallen UFO creatures and, and uh, we can simply tap into the cosmic machine. Like some of this stuff is just off the wall, and we want to be really careful before we throw our lives away believing this stuff. Uh, just see if there's anything that justifies it. Now the second one is that uh, some people say we don't have to do apologetics because hey, Jesus didn't do it. You can read this stuff. I just want to highlight what it, you know because there's a lot of stuff there. But just so you won't be intimidated when you read this one last time, just make a list. Just put them all down on a page. These these. He's got eight reasons and then another five very simple reasons. But these first eight all are excuses supposedly from the Bible. This is a nice little trick you can use. You can say, well, if you're a Christian, you can actually use the Bible and pick out a passage here and there or, or, or a theme and say, hey, there's a reason not to do apologetics. You don't have to justify the Bible. Now, number two, when people say Jesus didn't do apologetics, why should we? Um, I'm not just sure what Bible they're reading, but of course he did. I mean, of course he did. He, he, when, he, when John the Baptist, some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Just, that's all right. I'll just give you an example. I'll throw up some words here because we, we can't. You're coming from all different places. When John the Baptist asked, this is um, mentioned in the text, I think it's Matthew 11. It doesn't matter. You don't have to memorize all of this. When John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus saying, Who are you? Are you the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah? Jesus sent back a message right out of Isaiah 61, an Old Testament prophet, which basically said, I've come to raise the dead and cure the lame and, and, and bring food to the hungry. It was, it was his way of saying, yes, I am. That's apologetic. That's an argument. That's by, by citing a scripture that says, this is what the Messiah will do, the, the, the one who's going to save us will do when he comes. Jesus used that. He also performed miracles and signs and wonders, healing miracles, nature miracles, all kinds of things. That's apologetics. They still do it today. So, I don't know where this comes from, but when, when people say Jesus didn't do apologetics, um, what they do is they focus on a couple of occasions when he refused to do so. In his own hometown, of course, he refused to do it because the people, you could move mountains, um, you could raise the dead, and they still would scoff. And there was no point. He didn't do them for people who had an attitude like this was some kind of a game 
or this or, or who would reject it anyway. Quite frankly, if Carl Sagan could speak and say, "Give me the burning cross in the sky," Mr. Mr. Atheistic, you know, scientism, Carl Sagan, recently deceased, he is the one who said, "I need a miracle." I, I guarantee, if that miracle had happened, he'd still be saying. Well, it's, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. Like, there's no point in performing a miracle for people who are going to reject it anyway. So that's why Jesus, on occasion, didn't perform miracles. So when, you, when you're looking for an excuse not to justify what you believe and say, hey, Jesus didn't do it, what this is is a very convenient way of picking one or two occasions where he didn't do it. The other times he was more than happy to perform miracles of healing and nature miracles for people who believe. Um, he doesn't. He didn't perform them as as as, as, a, as a way to bring in skeptics because he knew what uh, Pascal told us 300 years ago. You can have all the evidence in the world for uh, for God. Let's say for God's existence that God exists, but if you have the wrong bias, like this internal presupposition, this internal bias that you don't want there to be a God, you don't want to believe, and a lot of people do, um, you're not going to see the evidence. Evidence is only seen with the eyes of faith. That, that's a fact. Um, we should read Pascal before this class is over. Just a, a, a couple of um, set, uh, just just a half a session on him. He's got one of the best arguments for God's existence. Why don't we understand? If there is a God, why don't we see it? Well, you only see it with the eyes of faith is the answer. If you don't have the eyes of faith, it's just not going to be there, no matter what evidence there is. That's where Carl Sagan comes in. God could be in the sky saying, it's me, I'm alive. Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever. Carl Sagan was still not believed because he's predisposed not to, as are many people. It's not about evidence. It's about attitude. That's what Jesus understood. So number two is taken care of. Now, sometimes uh, people who don't want to do apologetics to justify their faith, remember apologetics just means that, justifying faith. It's a simpler way of saying it. Um, and it's not apologizing, it's justifying. Paul, supposedly, um, the, the argument goes, stopped doing apologetics, stopped justifying the faith uh, when he confronted the Greek philosophers in Athens. They weren't impressed uh, with, with his arguments that he uh, discovered the unknown God that, they were, that the Romans believed in. Now, that again is a very poor understanding of what the scripture says. Paul spent his life going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching, justifying, arguing, contending, making the case for what he believed. He didn't change a thing after meeting these skeptical Greek philosophers. In fact, he converted a couple of them. And like, like there's nothing in Paul that says, I regret Athens, I'm going to change my mind. He keeps doing exactly what he did before. So that's another bad argument. I hope this isn't confusing, but I'm saying a lot of Christians like to use that one and say that because Paul stopped doing apologetics, uh, why should we have to do it? The simple answer is Paul did apologetics. He, he took, I mean, almost every letter he wrote was an apologetic, a defense of what he believed in. Um, he, he didn't take it on faith alone. Okay, so number three, it's not as major as, as the first one, maybe the first two, but it's there. Number four, you hear this all the time. I bet you're thinking it. If you don't even have to see it, if there is a God, God wants our faith, not our reason. There's, there's a good one. Nobody says that's not a good one. Um, 
and there and, and you and you can probably find some biblical passages which which justify that. God wants faith, not reason. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews 11, chapter 11 is a famous text that uh, faith is the evidence of things. God, God wants our faith. But faith is the evidence of things not seen. Um, and on and on it goes. A lot of people say there is a, there's a strand in the Bible which says that it's faith that God wants, not reason. Now, the simple answer to that since when did faith and reason uh, contradict one another? Surely God wants a, an informed faith. That's why there's all these appeals in, it's not just faith, a blind faith like, like these people are arguing as an excuse not to have to think anything more than they do. But the Bible is filled with exhortations, with commands, with, 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 with arguments to say that we should be prepared to give an evidence for give evidence for what we believe over and over and over again in almost every every chapter and text in Paul and all and in Jesus' very actions. So to find one that says God wants faith, not reason. You know, you know, it's a principle of interpretation that 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 most of these criticisms come from. There's a logical fallacy here of interpretation. If you always in any book, including the Bible and the Quran, I'm sure you can find contradictions. But that, that, but what you do with your principle of interpretation is you, you take the majority view. I mean, the whole point of, of just about the entire New Testament and the Old, just to take those, the Bible, just for the sake of argument now, instead of the Quran and adding Bhagavad Gita and all this. The whole point of the Bible is basically to do apologetics, it, it, especially the New Testament. Peter's first sermon, Paul's entire lifetime, the method that he used, like I said, and the things that he said, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, it was all about justifying the faith. So you have to interpret what looks as contradictory to that um, as, as uh, you've just misunderstood what's there because that's not what it's saying. Um, the rest of the Bible is saying, don't just be faithists. Don't just have blind faith. That's not what God wants. He's given us a reason. He expects us to use it. And that's what we're told Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what Moses did. That's what all of the prophets they, they, they basically gave reasons for people to believe what they were saying. I could go on and give you the in-depth description of Hebrews 11, but it would take, it would take a, too long, and that's not our problem. You just need to know, uh, I think, that very principle. There's a logical fallacy involved to take one text, which goes against all other texts, and give it equal weight. Chances are it's not the text that's the problem. It's our interpretation that's the problem. And in fact, that's the way it works out in a theology class where we could spend an hour on Hebrews 11 and realize that um, it's, it's outweighed by the evidence that we're supposed to be justifying our faith, not just having blind faith. It, it never says that... Like the text that the people say, we don't have to justify the faith because look at Hebrews 11 saying, God wants our faith. The text... The Bible never says that God doesn't want our reason, if you want to come right down to it. Um, if it actually said that, that God wants our faith, that God does not want our reason, that's a different story. But it never says that. And it, by example, it's always about justifying, justifying, arguing, contending, showing that you have reasons for what you believe. And this, this, this is misunderstood. Number four, if, um, if it's going to be used as a proof text, for laziness, a, a proof text for faithism. doesn't work. It's been used, though. Especially, by the way, in contemporary Christianity, which is not 
terribly interested in justifying what it believes. It's more than happy to say, this is what we believe, the fallacy of tradition, this is what we've always believed, so it must be true. But th that's a fallacy. Just because it's always been believed doesn't make it true. It might always have been wrong. We have to, we have to find reasons for this, or else we're just another New Age group that has no, no, no justification for what it believes. And no one wants to be called a fanatic, fundamentalist, faithist. If we believe something, we should be prepared to give evidence. And we shouldn't be afraid of looking for evidence for and against. Or else, our belief is probably worth nothing. Um, God doesn't want irrational, meaningless beliefs. Now, what about... Um, there's, a, there's a tough one. These are not simple. Like Very few of you have studied... Uh, Biblical theology, I'm sure. So I, I, again, I'm not trying to overwhelm. I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm trying to mention them because they're in the text. Number five is about how Paul supposedly rejected human wisdom. There's one passage in his first letter to the Corinthians where he scoffs. Where are the, you know, he quotes the Old Testament and they're, they're saying that human knowledge is just miserable, meaningless nonsense. Now, that sounds like a pretty good argument. If human knowledge is just miserable, meaningless nonsense, it's God's wisdom that we want, not human wisdom, then isn't that a good excuse not to have to use this miserable human knowledge and, and try to justify what we believe? Some people think that's a great excuse not to have to do any thinking. And you wonder why we have books these days called, uh, you know, The Scandal of the... Of the I'll, I'll paraphrase the title so not, you know, just to make more sense of it. The Scandal of the Christian Mind or the uh, loving God with all of our mind. Why are people writing books about how it's a scandal that we don't think in religion, that we don't take the trouble to justify? Well, we use, we use passages like this. If um, Paul scoffs at worldly wisdom in the first letter to the Corinthians, right at the beginning there, it sounds like we should be scoffing at worldly wisdom too. Well, if you just take the text in context, Paul, for one thing, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to Corinth. And this is, you know, in the, in the early, maybe the early 50s A.D. And these people were, were Greeks. This is, this is Greek in Greece. And they were dominated by sophists who, were, who basically argued any point just for the love of rhetoric. What he's saying is earthly wisdom that's rhetoric, that, that simply is arguing for the sake of arguing, of course, that's not what anybody wants. What we want to do is have worldly wisdom in sync with God's wisdom. We want to argue what's true. We're not. He, he, he's saying that you people in Corinth have been too influenced by these, by these sophists, which which are involved in meaningless words. That's not what it's about. The words have to be um, based on how Paul argues. Uh, he, he's arguing God's wisdom by giving evidence for it, rather than. Uh, human wisdom, which is simply just meaningless words. That has been so misunderstood by so many centuries of Christians as an excuse to simply believe without having the exercise of engaging in the exercise of um, thinking about the belief. Anyway, that, uh, we'll keep on going. Uh, six and seven are kind of at the range of deep Christian theology, but just let me tell you what's going on there. And I'm going to have you focus on, on other ones, but what's going on there is that the official Christian understanding is that it's not reason can't lead us to, to faith in God. Um, the only thing that can lead us to faith in God for a Christian is God himself. The Holy Spirit of God 
He gives us the grace to believe or else we can't believe. That's the Christian version. That's the Christian belief. So, of course, people are going to say, why are we involved in reason then, arguing for these beliefs, trying to convince ourselves and others that they're valid if it's the Holy Spirit's job to do it? The Holy Spirit can use reason to, you know, it never says that the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to use your mind to understand things. Like, a lot of people are not open. This is the Christian theology. We're not open to faith in God because there are obstacles and roadblocks in the way. We have biases and like we don't usually they're logical fallacies, but not often. Like reason sometimes can break down these show that some of these biases are, are irrational, not founded on evidence or logic, and then we're more open to the influence of God in our lives. Do you ever wonder why this person believes for a Christian? Why this person believes and this person doesn't believe in God? The Christian answer is that God gives the ability to believe. And if the per- so if somebody's open to it, if somebody asks, the belief is given by God. If somebody's biased and doesn't want to believe, God does not overcome the bias. Apologetics might. Defending the faith might overcome that bias. It's not an excuse, though, uh, to simply say God does it all. Reason can do an awful lot of things by showing that what you believe, let's say, if you're a Scientologist, again, I just have to pick on somebody today so I don't walk all over the field here. To overcome Scientology, that bias for it, arguing for, let's say, Christianity, like, opens up. Once the bias is gone, we're more open to God's influence, is what I'm saying. As long as we're biased, we're not going to see it. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues. 